Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's passage is from Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared them a city. All right, pray with me, if you would, as we look at these verses from God's Word. God, there are many souls here, eternal souls, gathered. And in this precious time, we, we tear ourselves away from the things of this world to look at your words for us. And my prayer this morning is that you would work in us, that you would speak to us, These words are for us, and they have eternal significance and value and should change us. So I pray for the glory of your name and for our good that you would do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning and welcome again to Orchard Bible Church on this 4th of July. Uh, We've mentioned that a few times this morning, but one of the things we haven't mentioned is that today is the 245th anniversary of the formation of this country and of our independence. And I have to say, I love this country. I absolutely love it for many, many reasons. And uh, we could name some of those. We could also maybe look at some of the things that we don't love, we don't like about what's happening in our country. But here's one that's still alive today and that has set us apart as uh, what I would consider a better country, and that is the hope offered to countless millions. The hope offered. You know, many have, have left everything at home. Their family, their history, all that they had, they've left it behind to come to this country. And this had to happen for your family, too. So it could be uh, that, that your family is, of all the families here, the one that came the longest ago, seeking a better country, leaving all behind and not looking back. Or it could be, as I know some of you are, you could be the first of your generation to leave everything behind and come looking for a better country. And what's interesting is you look at history, most people who first move to America don't immediately experience the full benefit from coming here, do they? In fact, life is hard and full of struggles here. Sometimes it takes generations before you start to really experience all that the hope that's been offered to you. But people don't go back. They stay here 
longing and looking for that better country. This is often called the American dream, and I just want to read you how one well-educated German put it after he fled the failed 1848 revolution. This is what he says. The German emigrant comes into a country free from the despotism, privileged orders and monopolies, intolerable taxes, and constraints in matter of belief and conscience. Everyone can travel and settle wherever he pleases. No passport is demanded. No police mingles in his affairs or hinders his movements. Fidelity and merit are the only sources of honor here. The rich stand on the same footing as the poor. The scholar is not a mug above the most humble mechanics. No German ought to be ashamed to pursue any occupation. In America, wealth and possession of real estate confer not the least political right on its owner above what the poorest citizen has. And as we lament at times, maybe even some of the pieces of this that have been lost a little, every time the national anthem plays, we take off our hats, we put our hand over our hearts. Every 4th of July, like today, we celebrate that it's still standing, that it still offers the hope and the promise of a better country. Today, the preacher in Hebrews wants to inspire and excite and grow your faith in the promise of a better country by looking at a man and a woman who also left everything that they had behind and who left and lived a life uh, like nomadic exiles uh, for the promise of a better country. And there was an aspect of that that was the promise of a better physical land and country for them. There's a piece to that for Abraham and Sarah. But we're told, as we just heard, that it was not the physical land that kept them from going back. Verses 14 through 16 say, For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. So the Hebrews preacher is sharing this story of this couple, this family, to get us excited, to strengthen our faith. Why? I just love this idea. Because faith always starts with a promise from God. Through Christ, God promises us and you this morning a better country. A country with no tears, with no suffering, with no laments, with no hopes or things that you thought would satisfy you that you're pursuing that fell short. No broken relationships, no more struggles. Instead, in this better country, everything's plentiful. Everything's overflowing. Joys, the deepest satisfaction you can imagine, and the unbroken, unlimited presence of our perfect God. Well, that sounds pretty good. How is it to be yours? It's to be yours the same way it was for Abraham and Sarah, with the same faith in the same God. And it came through the fulfilled promise to Abraham and Sarah, through their offspring, Jesus, who died on the cross and took our punishment that we might have this hope. So God promises this to you 
And he always comes through on his promises. He's always faithful. So here's the main idea of my message for you this morning. And that is desire a better country. Each day when you wake up and you haven't received it yet. And your deepest desires are not satisfied. You're seeking a homeland. You're seeking a better country that is a heavenly one. So I want us to start by looking at four headlines in the lives of Abraham and Sarah, four headlines of faith, and then apply them to our own lives. And what I've done with these four, uh, for most of you, they'll be very familiar. Uh, and that's kind of unfortunate because you might miss that they're incredibly shocking. So I decided, why don't we phrase these as four headlines that you might see in the Sun or in the National Enquirer uh, to just give us a little bit uh, of this shock value and not miss the crazy huge promises that God is making here. So let's look at headline number one. Man leaves everything for an unknown promised land. Verses 8 through 10, let's read. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Let's stop there. Uh, in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4, we have the story of God calling Abraham, Abram at the time, to leave Haran where he lived and, quote, go to the land that I will show you. Now, we know that this was to be Canaan, which is about a 400-mile journey from Haran. But what we could forget is that Abraham did not know where he was going. But he believed that it would be great because of the person who was telling him and who was promising it to him and who would be with him. So I, I want to illustrate this in a very personal way for you this morning. Let's say that I come to you and I say, we'll take something much smaller than moving permanently. I want to go on a vacation, and I'd love for you and your family to join me on this vacation. It's going to cost a lot of money, but I'm not going to tell you where we're going. Would you like to go? Would you commit to this today? Let's go right now. Let's go. Now, why would you say yes, or why would you hesitate or say no? Well, it all comes down to your faith in me and this vacation that I'm inviting you to join me on, doesn't it? Well, even if you thought you probably trusted me, I imagine you'd have some questions you'd want answered first before you committed to join. Well, what's amazing is God does not call Abraham on a vacation, does he? He calls him to move permanently. And in Abraham, we see no resistance here. No delay, no excuses, no complaining. Why? Why does he do this? How can he do this? Well, just as in my illustration, he has total confidence in God and his promises. So he lets go of everything, not knowing even where he's going, but taking with him a huge promise. And in verse 9, we see that he lived his whole life as a refugee, as a foreigner in tents, as would his son and his grandson after him, who are mentioned there. So again, let's pause and let's not miss that from a human standpoint, he's left everything for this promise. He's living in a tent as a refugee with his family, year after year, 
And he's not, he's not growing from a human perspective in his, what he could see as progress on conquering this country. In fact, he's old and his wife is old and they don't even have an heir. They have no child to even carry on the quest, let alone to conquer this place and to receive it as their own. Their uh, human progress in possessing the land is exactly zero. So after 24 years of this, holding and waiting, we can see in Genesis 15 that as Abraham speaks with God, he asks, I think, a very fair question. How am I to know that I am to possess it? I think it's a fair question, uh, again, just based on this reality of the life that Abraham was experiencing. But also I want you to remember, as Abraham was living this life of faith, he did not have the track record of God's faithfulness that we have today, did he? He was at the beginning. I love that God loves to start from scratch. Whether he's creating a universe or whether he's choosing a chosen people, he loves starting from nothing. And we can see his faithfulness as the nation of Israel continues to this day. So when, when he asks God, show me how I'm to know I, that th- I'm to receive this, God does something that he only did one time ever in history. And that is he makes a one-way covenant with a man and makes promises that are only binding to him as God. Not on Abraham, but Abraham gets all of the promise, all of the rights entitled there. But if you're in Abraham's shoes, it's important to note what God promises and what he doesn't promise through this covenant. Listen to this. You Put yourself in his shoes now. You're asking, how do I know? And in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14, we read that God says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And then in verse 18, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So Abraham knew that he in his lifetime would not see this promise fulfilled, but that his family would. But also, God shows Abraham that there is a promise, a portion of this promise, for a heavenly city, not an earthly one. As we saw in our chapter in verse 10, it says, For he, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. I want to pause there just for a second. Uh, We live thousands of years later after Abraham, and we've seen uh, great cities built. We've seen technologies and improvements. We can picture in our head a heavenly city and something comes to your mind as it does to mine as well. But even for us, what we're picturing of a city with foundations that are eternal, that was designed, a whole city designed and built by God, I'm sure it falls very, very short. Just as Abraham couldn't have pictured this city we're living in and what it would be like. No matter what you and I picture, it's going to fall very short. And I don't know exactly how much and how detailed God was in what he showed Abraham, but this we know. He showed him enough for Abraham to know that the only smart, logical choice was tents now and mansions later. Yet, 
It takes great faith to live your whole life as a nomad in a tent with the vision and promise of mansions later. And it's to the same incredible patience that you and I are called in this life. A lifetime of faith, not getting the best part of the promise. But the promises must be so good that we do not turn back. We press on in obedience and we believe. I want to illustrate this again in a human way for you uh, briefly. Let's just say I came to you this morning and I said, here's a sketch of a flying car that I'm working on. And it's going to be great. And everyone's going to want it, of course. Who wouldn't? This is a, a great promise, a flying car. And it can be yours, but here's what I need. For the next 10 years, I need you to sell all of your vehicles. I need you to walk, take your bike or the bus Give all the money to me as I'm working on the flying car. And at the end of this 10 years, you'll get your flying car. Well, there's an initial leap of faith, is there not, to do those things, to take the action, go out and sell those cars and give me the money, hoping for the promise of a flying car. But then there's another type of faith that's applied, is there not, every 100-degree day, as you stand out in the Colorado sun waiting for the bus to arrive, or as you consider how you're going to get where you need to go and you look at the blizzard outside. At any moment, you'll be tested in your faith for this flying car that's coming, and you'll be tempted to go back to the comforts of that car that you had that are right there for you. So, as Abraham faced this, he did make a leap of faith, but then he also took the day-by-day steps of faith to leave and then stay in this place, living in a tent, waiting for what God would give him. So, headline number one, man leaves everything for unknown promised land. Why? Because God made him a promise worth believing. Headline number two, barren woman believes promise that she will conceive a son at 90. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Uh, It's astounding that these verses are here for a couple reasons. The first is that Sarah is a woman, and in documents of this time women would not be included. They wouldn't be mentioned, uh, and their faith would not be so honored. And I think it's so great that God shows us at the very, very beginning as he sets forth this couple and and his plan through them, that he includes uh, these verses, these people and these verses here in Hebrews that speak to Sarah and her faith. But the second reason why it's pretty astounding that it's in here is that when most of us think of Sarah and her faith, uh, it's not at the top of our list of something we would include in our hall of faith. Uh, Her faith was not perfect. Uh, Normally, when we think of her reaction to God's promise, we sort of grunt and shake our heads, uh, feeling maybe even superior ourselves to her reaction. Genesis 18.12 says that Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? But we shouldn't jump too quickly to put all the blame on Sarah because the chapter before, 
In 1717, we read that Abraham fell on his face and laughed to himself. Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So here's the deal. This couple was made a promise by God for their descendants. And at this point in the story, they've waited for 24 years. And they've given up hope. They've dreamed of and wanted a son, an heir. They've wanted it so badly, looking even to anything that they maybe could control to bring this about, that Sarah even gave her servant to her husband. Maybe the child through that. that We have to find a way to make this happen. That shows you the desperation, and that was years before. But this time, in Genesis 18.10, God told them a time. I will surely return to you at about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And she laughs. Sarah's heart initially rejects it. Do I dare hope again? I've been barren in my youth, barren in my prime. Thousands of times I've imagined holding my son, my child, in my arms, the joy that that would give me. And now as an old, wrinkled lady, will I be given that joy? But Hebrews tells us Sarah had a change of heart. Verse 11 says, she considered him faithful who had promised. And a year later, she does have a son, and they name him Isaac, which I think is so cool. I kind of had missed this before. Isaac means laughter. And I can't help but think of Sarah and Abraham thinking of their laughing to themselves as God promised this incredible promise. But then a year later, laughing in the joy that they desired that was now theirs. She believed that God was faithful to his incredible, impossible, wonderful promise. And God was faithful and gave her the power to to conceive. And God has since then brought millions of physical descendants into the world and has blessed the whole world, even us this morning, through one of his descendants, through Jesus Christ. One other point here. Sarah's hope was no half-hearted hoping. Oftentimes, I think that uh, in our own lives... Uh, We want something, we hope for something, and we pray that God would grant it. But then when it comes to pass, we think to ourselves, I've even heard Christians say this, how do you know it's not just coincidence? I saw how hard you were working, the choices you made. How do you know it wasn't just your own doing that this came about? Why do you give God all the credit? I think that type of thinking is part of why God gives us sometimes God-sized problems that only he can solve. At this point for Sarah, her faith was not resting on her desires for a child or on their human performance. She didn't say, let's give it one more try, honey. I think maybe this time, maybe this time it'll work. No, there's nothing left. There's no possibility of coincidence. Her faith could rest only on a promise, and her faith was real because she trusted the one who made the promise. Barren woman believes promise that she will conceive 
a son at 90, and God's miracle and faithfulness is proven. All right, headline number three. Three generations die homeless, still believing in a promised homeland. Let's look at verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. All right, this headline certainly overlaps some with the first one, but it does expand on it. When it says, these all died in faith, it's speaking of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and they had not received the things promised, but they greeted it from afar. And I love how Piper puts it. Abraham says that the promises of God are like a great friend or lover coming to meet you. You see her in the distance. Your heart leaps up and you greet her the best you can from a distance and you say to others, I'm waiting for her to come. That is what I want. This time, this place are incomplete without her. I don't really belong here. I belong with her. That's how they lived. The first test is to leave all. The second test, to stay. And as this verse, these verses point out, at any point, any one of them across generations could have said, I'm sick of it. The tents in the sand, the wandering, the lack of comforts. Let's go back to Haran. We have lots of great things waiting for us there. It's very easy. So how did they hold up? Well, first it tells us, that they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, that this earth couldn't satisfy their ultimate need for a homeland. And secondly, they didn't think about the land that they had left. In a certain sense, Haran was dead and it was gone to them. I love the picture of, of people sometimes in war or in other extreme times landing somewhere and burning the ships. Well, that's what they did in their minds and in their hearts. They burned the ships that would take them back to Haran. They were not thinking about that anymore. Verse 15 says that if they had kept that option open, they could have easily gone back to what the world had to offer them. And then comes verse 16. This is a verse, I hope you see, it's filled with grit, it's filled with determination, and it's filled with faith, as we saw the definition in verse 1, it's filled with the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. No, we're not going back. God hasn't told us everything. We don't know all the details, but we know enough, and we've seen that he's faithful to his promises, and our heart's desire is set on a better country. So we will wait, and we will stay here. We will wait on him. And the second half of the verse says, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And this should rock us. If you've looked at the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you'll see their performance on this earth was not stellar. It was not impressive. If you've forgotten, go back and read in Genesis. These were real people, real like you and me. 
and all of our hard work and trying and all of theirs cannot make God proud. But God says he's not ashamed to be called their God. In fact, often we see him in the Old Testament and even in the New, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How can this be? Imagine, especially if you're a parent, but maybe put yourself in the role of the friend, if not, of some kids behaving, as kids do, uh, badly most of the time, and uh, maybe some good things sprinkled in. But imagine as the father, if I was to put my arm around you in the midst of that and look out at these behaviors, these shenanigans going on, and to say, I am not ashamed to be their father. Well, that would be strange, would it not, based on their performance at the time? That would strike you a bit odd. Uh, we reel and we resist our own temptation around our family members especially to, to not be ashamed of them. Well, how much more extreme for a perfect holy God to not be ashamed to be called someone's God? It cannot be based on their performance. It cannot be based on their good versus their bad works. Well, verse 16 tells us what it's based on. It's based on their faith in his performance, his character. God made a one-way covenant with Abraham to bless them in this life and in the next. That covenant had no clause about his performance, his rule-following ability. But he had to believe it. And he did, and for generations they did, proving it by living and waiting for a better country, a heavenly homeland, the one that he had promised. Let's look at our last headline, and then some application. Headline number four. Father nearly kills his long-awaited son of promise, hoping for a miracle. Really? Yes, really. Let's look at this, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Verse 17 says, simply, he was tested. Wow. Wow. Talk about a test of faith. God had been faithful in the year after his promise. They had this promised boy. It would be an understatement to say that Abraham and Sarah loved this little boy. In fact, A.W. Tozer says, Abraham had become the love slave of his son Isaac. This would be understandable after all this waiting and receiving this promised son. It's so easy for us to let go of the one who promises and to hold on to one of his blessings. So God asks Abraham to give Isaac up as an offering. And the word here, Abraham would have known, is a specific kind of offering. It's a whole burnt offering, which means you keep nothing back from this type of offering. But is this too far? Is this too extreme? Don't we need to make sense a little bit of the things that God asks us? Doesn't it need to jive and line up with us a bit for us to follow? Well, not for Abraham. Abraham passes this incredible faith test. How? Verse 17 says, He who had received the promises. 
But we could translate this as he who was embracing or embraced the promises. And the picture that this gave to me is that by this time in his life, when he's tested, Abraham is clinging. He's seen God's faithfulness with all his might. He says, I will not let go of your promise to me. I will hold on at any cost. There's no emotion. There's no circumstance that will shake me from holding on to your promises. I refuse to let go. He clung to the promise with full confidence. And note here, he was convinced that he was going to have to kill Isaac. He was convinced he would die. But he was wrong. Note that it doesn't say that he believed that God would raise him, even, but that God was able to raise him. And figuratively, as God stops Abraham short, the dagger raised and provides the ram in the bushes as a substitute, he does receive him back. And this story teaches us of faith, but it also looks forward and prefigures something. Kruger explains the big picture that points forward. He says this, One day God, like Abraham, would put his, uh, into action his plan to sacrifice his one and only son. But there would be a big difference. This time, no one would come to the rescue. This time, there would be no angel sent to intervene, as was done for Isaac. In the case of the Son of God, there would be no reprieve. He would actually die. And he would actually be raised from the dead. So we've looked at these four, I hope, shocking headlines. And we've seen God make God-sized promises. We've seen Abraham and Sarah believe and have faith in those promises and in the person of God. And then we have seen God be faithful, show himself worthy of that faith. So let's apply it to ourselves this morning. How does this change and impact our own faith in God? Well, I've given you a little place to write in there these things. Number one, grow your faith in God's promises. Now, here's what I want you to do as we talk about how to grow your faith in God's promises. I want you to picture something that's a promise in this life for you. Sometimes it's a, a big vacation. Maybe it's a big purchase you've been saving up for. It could be an actual inheritance that's going to be yours one day. There's this promise. It's not yours today, but it's going to be. What do you do with that to grow your faith in this promise? Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to know what God does and does not promise you, right? You may not know a lot of the details this morning. You may not have heard those, read those, and be aware of what he's promised you in depth, in detail. We need to take the time to study these, to know them. But just as when Abraham clung in faith, he understood what was not promised. He understood this was going to be a long wait. We should look at what God is not promising us. Often Christians lose faith and are disheartened because we misunderstand thinking of certain promises that will be ours in this life that God has not promised us. In fact, Jesus has promised us that this life will be hard. 
So we need to first know what God does if our faith is to grow. Secondly, we need to meditate on them. If you're looking forward to a big something, you think about it, don't you? You meditate on it. And as you think and chew on it, it becomes richer. It becomes more real. We need to spend real time meditating on God's promises. And then next, I hope the outpouring of this, I think this is what the preacher wants us, it's what I want for you this morning, is for, to be excited about these promises. To be excited and then because we're excited to talk about it. And I had this question I asked myself, which is, as believers, when we hang out, how much time do we spend excitedly talking about the promises to come versus talking about what we're excited about in this life, either something we have or something we hope to have? How much do we do that? Our faith will not grow. We will not grow each other's faith in the promises that we hold on to if we're focused on just the small things that are here on this, on this planet, on this life, in the short years we have. So number one, grow your faith in God's promises. Number two, apply, this is the not fun one, apply your faith to God's testing. I love uh, listening to Keller on this, that he reminds us that uh, these tests that God has for us are just like real world tests. And the tests in this life, you think of school or uh, maybe something professionally or some other area in your life of a testing, uh, there are two things that tests do. Number one, they show us or reveal, measure where we are at. And then number two, they challenge us to grow, to achieve more. Tests are horrible and unpleasant. And therefore, they are effective, aren't they? Uh, the, the test has to seem contradictory to God's promises. That is what a test is by definition. If, if your faith is to be tested... It has to be horrible. So how do we apply this to ourselves? And you may even be asking yourself, you know, I, I don't feel that tested. I don't think I'm experiencing that many tests. Well, I would encourage you to think about that, reflect on that, because God is testing all of us constantly, every day, every week, in some way, sometimes in bigger ways, sometimes in smaller, but... If you're missing it, there's a good chance you're simply not aware even that you're being tested and you're choosing your way. So let me give you some examples that I think um, they're so common that it could be lost on you and me today, but th these are really what we need to think about as we consider God's testing for us. The first one is giving up sexual pleasure or desires or even giving up the person or the idea of something that you desire if they're not within what God has clearly shown us in his will is for us. Every time this comes up, we have a test. Do we go back to the world? This clear promise of pleasure and joy that's being offered? Or do we endure another day in faith? Our faith is under fire. And it would be so easy to walk away in the 100-degree day and go back to the comfort of what we want. It's a test that we must 
be strong in, and they seem contradictory, as tests do, don't they? They seem at the moment contradictory to God wanting the best for us, for us to be fulfilled. Here's another one. Again, so common, but we have two main treasures in this life. We have money and we have time. Treasures that we can spend and are gone. Well, we're tested in how we spend both of those. It's so easy to spend it on self. It's so hard to spend it on others, either our time and our money, especially if there's nothing that we can clearly see we have to gain from giving this up. It's just a loss to us. It seems contradictory to the best for our lives. That is a test. Do we even, for example, in the morning, take that time to spend it with our best friend, the Lord Jesus, who has told us he's available and waiting and wants to spend time with us, and that that's what we're designed for? Or when we're tested, do we do we give that up seeking for something earthly that we feel pressure to pursue? And then lastly, here in this point, uh, think of Isaac as it was to Abraham, um, as something ultimately loved, as an idol. It could be, in this case, even something good, but something that you love and is telling you that it will satisfy you and fulfill you if you serve it. If I asked you to give that up this morning, if God asked you to give that up, would you push back? Would you demand reasonableness and some explanation because it crosses your will? Or would you be willing to to cling to the promise of the, the better country to come instead of to that? God gives us these tests to show us where we are at in believing and desiring him versus other favorite things. And to challenge us to grow. He always wants more for us. He's always in the business of more. He will never give you a test in order to do less in your life and through your life. Never. He was always in the business of more. But it feels in that test contradictory. I've even heard strong Christians say to maybe someone who's going on the mission field or has made some clear external decision, good for you really an inspiration. I could never do that. I would never do that. And it hits me. Do we have already a premeditated list of things that God cannot ask us to do? Is it like telling a parent, no, I'm not going to mow the lawn or do the dishes if you ask me to. I don't care what reward you promise me. I don't care what you say. I could never do that. I would never do that. Let us be challenged to apply our faith in the time of testing. Let that not be true of us. Number three, quickly. Obey quickly when tested. Uh, First, I'll just tell you this morning, if you don't have a habit of obeying God and following him, then that means, as we're seeing here, that you do not have faith. If you don't have faith, then you're probably not saved. Even in the Old Testament, we see that the people who had faith in God obeyed him and followed him. Not perfectly, but they did. And we notice through Abraham a lesson that we are, that obedience needs to be immediate. Is it not true in this life? Every second that we delay reduces the chance that we're going to obey. 
It reveals our lack of faith. We read Abraham rose early in the morning with Isaac. No excuses, no delays, no hoping that it might go away and turn out some other way. It was clear that God had asked him to do it, and he rose up early. We have to be okay not receiving all of the goodness in this life. Tents now, mansions later. Obey quickly when tested. And then lastly, the theme that I started out with, which I hope, uh, especially on this 4th of July, as we celebrate a better country here that we get to have, desire a better country. I want to read a fairly long quote here, also by John Piper, um, for this point. What is faith? It is seeing the promises of God from afar and experiencing a change of values so that you desire the promises above what the world has to offer. It's a glad greeting of those promises from a distance and a heart seeking to know them and cherish them and be satisfied by them so that a new kind of life emerges that is out of sync with the world. A life that builds an ark in the desert and leaves the securities of home and builds a crib when you're 90 or lifts a knife over your most treasured earthly possession. Piper continues, do you want a God? A, do you want God to be unashamed of being your God? What must you do? Some great exploit that he can be proud of? Some high moral achievement that impresses him? The simple, stunning answer is this one. Desire him. Desire the city he has made for you. Desire the city of God over the city of man. Desire heaven over earth. Desire God over everything but God. This is what faith is on the inside. Faith desires God and the city of God that he makes for his people more than it desires what the world can give. So this morning... As C.S. Lewis very famously said, if we find in ourselves a desire, a promise for something, a desire for it, that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation, this is so exciting, is that we were made for another world, a better country. It is real. He has promised it to us. And we, unlike Abraham and Sarah, have thousands of fulfilled prophecies and promises historically, biblically, and in our own lives and midst here. So let us desire this heavenly country that is ours. Please stand as we close in prayer. Oh God, this morning I want us to be excited to, to know that faith always starts with a promise from you. A huge promise. A crazy promise. In this case, for us, for everyone here, an eternal promise of an incredible place with an incredible person. 
a place that we can only dream of, and you, God, the person that even through all the thousands, the millions of years of eternity, we will not fully even plumb the depths of, but we know this. The desires of our heart can only be satisfied there and by you, and that they will. And I pray for all of us, whether there's a person here who has not yet made that leap to let go of what they desire and cherish here, to hold and cling to Jesus Christ alone, the better and only sacrifice and atonement for their sins that purifies them. Lord, move them today to make that jump, to cling to you alone above all else. And to the rest of us who know that's true, we've done that. We say amen to that, but we're stuck in this world and we live like exiles, like refugees. We often feel we are not getting all of the goodness that we hope would come from such a good God. Help us, like Abraham and his wife, to cling to these promises to trust in them, to study them, to look at them, to be motivated by them, to share them with each other, and to live lives that clearly show where our ultimate treasure and desire is. And we are so thankful for your faithfulness. That one day, just as Sarah held her baby in her arms, we too will walk into the fullness of what our faith has looked forward to and greeted from afar. We will cling to all those things. They will be ours fully. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.